From the onset of entering the promised land, the people of God struggle. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So God raised up judges to help his people stay true to the ways of the Lord. The last judge was Samuel, who judged Israel all the days of his life. The people cried out, Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. The Lord relented and told Samuel, Give them their king. The people chose Saul, a man of good appearance and tall stature, but did not have a heart for God. The Lord rejected Saul and chose an unlikely candidate in David to be king. The Lord opposes the proud, exalts the humble, and in spite of evil, his master plan continues to unfold. This is 1 Samuel. This is 1 Samuel. So we'll dive into that today. Sorry, we're so excited for you uh, and what God is doing. Was that water warm enough for you? Perfect. All right. We want to get the water just right for him. So I got baptized in a mountain lake and it was freezing. So faster you could get out, the better. Uh, a friend this week is, you know, as we read the passage, you know, sometimes when you hear the passage read out of First Samuel, you're like, okay, so where are we going to go with this one? Uh, sometimes I feel like that when you get into the passage and you're like, man, this is just all kinds of stuff going on here. But I wanted to start with uh, an article that a friend had sent me about a, a pastor in Colorado. Here's the headline. Colorado pastor is accused of pocketing millions in a crypto scheme and says the Lord told him to do it. Here's the article. A Colorado-based pastor for an online church is accused of pocketing $1.3 million through a cryptocurrency fraud scheme. He told his followers in a video statement that the Lord really told him to do it. The pastor and his wife marketed their cryptocurrency index coin to Christian communities in Denver, saying God told him people would become wealthy if they would just invest. Index Coin raised $3.2 million, and at least $1.3 million of that went directly to the pastor or was used for their own personal benefit. The pastor told his followers last week in a video statement that the charges of pocketing $1.3 million are true. He said out of the $1.3 million, half a million went to the IRS. Go figure. And a few hundred thousand dollars went to a home remodel the Lord told us to do. Don't you just love it when people throw in the God card? You know, just go, the Lord told us to do this. It's interesting, the YouTube channel uh, that has all of this going on is full of scriptures, references, urging people to stay faithful, to trust God in this miracle. And there's actually comments on that site that the people are saying that, hey, the Lord's going to still turn this around. Just keep your faith. This thing's going to work out for the good. The couple also allegedly spent their investors' funds on a Range Rover, luxury handbags, jewelry, an au pair, boat rentals, and snowmobile adventures. So I'm just saying, next week, Fellowship is going totally online. (laughs) And this week, you'll be getting an email about an investment that you do not want to miss. Okay? I'm just joking. Uh, Just so you know, I drive a 2013 Nissan Frontier with 110,000 miles on it. It's my favorite vehicle I have ever had, and I hope to take it to 250. And the only uh, pair I've ever had is a pair of socks that are in my front, in my top drawer. Okay, that was a dad joke. Okay. 
Now, unfortunately, this corruption uh, is really nothing new. And in the midst of the beautiful story that, that Ben took us through last week of Hannah and her faith and, and Samuel coming along, uh, the Lord did indeed bless Hannah. And she had five more children, uh, three boys, two girls. And it's just a beautiful story of, of, of the faith that she had and, and Samuel coming on the scene. But then we're snapped right back into reality of just how dark the times had been. Now, we have told you how when we came out of Judges, everybody was doing right in their own eyes, right? Everybody was just kind of doing their own thing. That is still going on, and it is corrupting all aspects of life. And it's even eking its way into places that you wouldn't think it would, such as the tabernacle and the priesthood. And one line says it all. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. I mean, how would you like that to be written about you? For generation upon generation upon generation to be able to read, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They're talking about two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're not identified. They are identified later. They're, the NIV uses the word scoundrel. They're scoundrels. The King, King James Version says they're sons of Beel, which are like sons of perdition, sons of destruction. It's a re- reference to Satan. So therefore, in and of themselves, they're saying they are useless. They are wicked. The root word of this comes from is something that is worn out. It's used of the earth as it goes from a state of order to disorder, and eventually it's just kind of wearing out. That's what this says, is that they're no longer of use for anything. And in the Old Testament, when you said you were sons of someone, this was a great compliment. So, for example, if I said you have Josh Starks, who is son of uh, of Don Starks and Debbie Starks, you would say, okay, they are people of integrity, and Josh is a person of integrity, and and it's a good thing. But here, when you talk about Eli, you're talking about their sons are worthless. Worthless. Worth nothing. So let's, just, let's bring us up to speed here because God's people, when they came into the promised land, they were a nomadic people. They were a people that didn't stay in one spot, so they would move, move around as they were going on, following wherever the Lord was and what he did with them. They had the tabernacle, which was right in the middle of everything, and the tabernacle was where they worshiped. So you can imagine, once they get into the promised land and they each have their land, they, they tended to just grow apart a little bit, each of the tribes. They still had their things in common. One thing would be obviously that they had their common history. They all got freed out of Egypt. They had a common God, hopefully, if they didn't forsake that, that their common God. And they had their common place that they would come and they would meet God and they would make restitution with God. And that was the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle always went with them. It was always in the middle and it was mobile. And so they would have to set this thing up everywhere they went. When they would stay there for a while, they'd set it up. I don't know if you've ever been involved in church planting, but the first church that we planted in Lexington, Kentucky, I'll never forget just how hard it was every Sunday because you would have to pull a trailer with everything. Our, our, our church met in an um, elementary school, and so we would have to pull everything up, back the trailer up, unload it with all the sound equipment, all the children's things, everything, kind of span it out to every area that the church needed, set it up, Fortunately, this, this place had chairs that we could use, but we were in their cafeteria, so we had to put up their tables, put them to the side, set up all the chairs, set up the sound equipment, get everything set. And then when church was over, it wasn't like just go have lunch. It was break it all down, put it back in the trailer, 
you know, everything. You ha- every room had to be as if you were not there. And I just remember how hard that was continually. This is what they were doing with the tabernacle. They were setting it up everywhere they went. They made it so they could have it. And then it came a time when they got to finally in the promised land. They're more permanent now. They're not nomadic as much anymore. And so now the tabernacle is in Shiloh. And because it's in Shiloh and it has a little bit more of a permanence to it, we're not taking it down all the time, they started to build structures around it. And some of these structures that were built around it, not permanent structures, but more temporary structures, housed the priests. And so this would be the place where the priests would stay. So the priests would actually live on site. That will come into play here in just a little bit. But the Lord made it very clear what they were to do and how they were to handle these sacrifices that they were bringing, exactly what was supposed to happen. So you go back to Leviticus, and it lines it out pretty easily. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, that's for the Lord, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, this is the priesthood, and the right thigh. You shall give to the priest as a contribution for the sacrifice of your peace offering. Now there's more to it, but you you get the point. That the fat was supposed to be burned off to the Lord, the priest would get the right thigh and the breast, and the rest of it was for yourself. It's pretty clear. Everybody knew it. So what's going on? Well, Hophni and Phinehas, because they were doing what was right in their own eyes, decided that they're going to forsake all those things, and they're going to do it their own way. First thing they were doing is they were taking advantage of people's vulnerability in the name of God. At this time, when people are coming to the the tabernacle, they're coming in in a vulnerable moment, wanting to make peace with God, they're taking advantage of it. Notice in verse 13. It says, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. Now, the key word there is custom. The custom of the priests. This wasn't according to the law, here's what we do. This was the custom. The actual word means justice. So they were having their own justice. In other words, probably a a way that we would most use it is when I call you uh, vigilante justice meaning that you're taking things into your own hands. I think of it when I watch a Western and you have the vigilantes and they're going, we're not going to wait for the marshal. We're not going to wait for anything else. We're going to take this into our own hands and we're going to make sure that we do it our way and make sure that we we take retribution ourselves. Justice will happen, but it's going to be according to our time and the way that we want it. So this very word, the custom according to the priest, was what they would do is that they they would do it the way that they wanted. They made it their own rules in the name of God. So while they were keeping the fat portions to burn off, meaning they were keeping the portions from the Lord, and then the priests were, were supposed to keep the breast and the thigh, that's not what they were doing. They were doing anything according to the, They took anything that they wanted. And if you disagreed, they would take it by force. Again, vigilante. Now, it's interesting. In church history, this is not something that's unknown. This has always been something that has happened in the church, unfortunately. People making their own rules, doing their own things, taking advantage of people. For example, in the Reformation days, the whole reason the whole Reformation, one of the reasons the whole Reformation happened was that the priests were taking advantage of people's emotions uh, when, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door, uh, it was actually there uh, back in 2017 when they, entered, when they had a 500-year celebration of the Reformation. 
Wittenberg, Germany, and I remember watching right outside the door, they had a little, what looked like a treasure chest. And the treasure chest had a little opening on top, almost like you'd see at a piggy bank. And, and then there was a sign above, written obviously in Latin, I didn't understand it, but what, when someone interpreted it for me, it was this, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So what they were doing, they called these papal indulgences. So what the priests were doing is the priests were playing on people's emotions, and there'd be people lined up for blocks for this, where they would bring their coins, and they would drop them in the coffer, and when it rang, you know, when it dropped and you heard the coin hit the bottom, what you were doing is, they said, they would limit either a relative's time in purgatory. Now, let's not even go to purgatory. That's another whole theological thing that's way off. But they say you limit your time in purgatory or your, your time in purgatory will be less. So they're playing on the fact that they know, hey, oh, I had this aunt or this uncle, and I don't know if they knew the truth, and so I'm going to put this coin in the coffer so it'll set them free. And they were getting rich off of the very thing, that, off of people's emotions. Same thing. It was just a 6th century version of what the pastor in Colorado was doing. Different time, different place, same thing. Now, a little side note. Have you ever read in the scriptures and you just come across a passage and you go, I have no idea in the world why that's there. Verse 14 was that for me. This has nothing to do with a sermon. This is just a sidelight. Verse 14, it says, And when the priest would thrust into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and I'm like, so which one is it? Is it a pan? Is it a kettle? Is it a cauldron? Or is it a pot? And I looked up the Hebrew word for each of those. And you know what each of them means? A pot. <laughs> Which is why the message says, he thrust the fork into the cooking pot. You know, this is going to be one of those ones I'm going to go, okay, Lord, loved your word. It was great. Can you just explain to me what was going on in 1 Samuel 2, 14? What was it? You know, kettle, kettle, cauldron, pot, whatever. What, what was it? So it was a pot. So just let that go because it just was like I couldn't let that go in my mind. But the thing is, is the priest would take the fork, he would put it into the cooking pot, and whatever came up, whatever he wanted, he would take. It was all about me, all about what I wanted. And so they're taking advantage of people's emotions at a very vulnerable moment. Not only that, if that wasn't bad enough, they were actively showing disdain toward the Lord. Notice in verse 15, it says, moreover, which would be our English way of saying, and if that wasn't bad enough, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. I like my meat raw. So therefore, just give it to me off the top. No D&D even put it in there. You can see how this is totally about themselves. So they're even taking the fat portion. Now, thankfully, times have changed a bit. And the fat portion was seen as kind of a delicacy. It, 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 was, it was a part that you wanted. Now, I'm a meat eater, family or ranchers. So I like meat, but I don't like fat. 
And so when you see me eating meat on mine, I'll always trim off the fat. You'll always see it left over, which is why I don't necessarily care for ribs if they're fatty. If they're really meaty, I love them. But if not, I just don't like the fat. In fact, people who have gone to Mongolia have told me that fat is a big portion of their meat. And I'm like, I would struggle because trying to just put down that thing to me would be hard. But in their time, the fatty portions were the portions that were the best. It was, it was the best part of it. So you gave that to the Lord. And so they're taking that, and they're taking anything they want. And the people even knew this. So the people were even saying, hey, t- take anything you want, take, but don't take the fatty portion. Because that's the whole reason I'm here. I'm here to make restitution, to make peace with God. So don't take that. If you want to steal my portion, go ahead and steal my portion. But don't take the Lord's portion, which just shows you again and again how they were doing it their own way. And verse 17 sums it up. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. In other words, it was a purposeful disdaining. They were purposefully despising it. Now, sin in and of itself is bad enough, but when you have to have a qualifier with it, that's even worse. Their sin was very bad, very great. So horizontally, they're taking, they're taking advantage of people's emotions. Vertically, they're just thumbing their nose up at God, kicking him to the curb. And if that wasn't bad enough, it goes on. They're turning the tabernacle in verse 22 into a brothel. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they laid with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now remember, we said that because the tabernacle had more of a permanent place to it, they were building things up around it so the priests would actually live on site. And so the priests were taking advantage of, even Hophni and Phinehas were taking advantage of the women who were serving at the tabernacle telling them, hey, come over to my tent. And so the whole thing was being turned in to a brothel. And and Eli knew these things. He knew they were wrong, but he really didn't do anything about it. And the priesthood would be lost because of it. Now, you're sitting out there. Here's what I'd be saying. You'd be going, okay, Doug, this is great. I mean, thanks for the history lesson. Things were bad. But what has this got to do with me? I mean, this is a long time ago. How does it even got to do with me? Well, here's what's interesting. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures how it's pretty hard to find a harmonious family? Think about it. Name me one family in the scripture where it's all harmonious. It's pretty hard. I can start giving you all kinds of examples where there's sin and there's devastation and there's um, hardship and and things that are going on in the family. And you got to think, you know, the scriptures are very, very, I mean, they don't hide it about the drama in families and, and the things that go on. I mean, think about it. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, right out of the gate, they make their own choice, which is a choice that we would make to blatantly disobey God, It wasn't too long later, their oldest son kills their youngest son out of jealousy. You have Sarah, who gets tired of waiting on God, and therefore says, 
hey, Abraham, sleep with my servant Hagar. She conceives, bears Ishmael. That becomes jealousy and anger and everything that goes along with it. And all in a while, Abraham is being passive through the whole process. Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Esau and Jacob. Each of them have a favorite, which becomes one of the most bitter, bitter sibling rivalries ever known to man. And it shakes everything up. You have Gideon, who has a murderous son, Abimelech. You have Samson, who cashed in his Nazarite vow and his commitment to the Lord over lust for Delilah. You have Eli, who has his worthless sons, which is our thing today. In chapter 8, when we get to 1 Samuel, Samuel has worthless sons. I mean, here's a person who's raised up by God. King David. We can't even get started on that. You get into 2 Samuel, here's a guy who has a heart for God, and his family's a mess. And you think about it. Why is the Bible rather silent on, on harmonious relationships and families, but the examples of unharmonious ones flourish? Why would that be? You know, and I think part of it is because, look, we, we live in a broken world, and our society is not harmonious, is it? I mean, it, we, I just read the paper this morning, and I'm just looking at all the things around the world, and I'm just like, wow, Lord, there's just so much going on, so much pride and arrogance and people turning against one another and all these things. There's so much of it that's going on. And if we're honest, even in our own families, not everything is harmonious. When you take two sinful people and you put them in a family and they begin to interact with one another and have different personalities and different preferences and different wants and different things are going on and the sharing of things, you better believe that there's going to be some things that happen out of our own flesh. And I think that part of this is that in this, God is just reminding us of our need for him. He's showing us how much that we need. His plan has always been to graciously redeem sinful people which is us. And that's his plan. And the answer isn't for a perfectly harmonious family, but rather a perfect savior. I tell this to young couples who get married all the time, particularly Christian young couples when, they, when I officiate their wedding. Hey, look, take the pressure off of having the perfect marriage. It doesn't exist. But rather center on the perfect savior. And the perfect Savior will take your brokenness and will, harmon- will bring harmony out of it. But it will constantly be uh, a reminder of how much that we need him. And so from the beginning, God has never changed his plan. It has always been to help us to understand. And I think it's in this, when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize, I just can't reach this peaceful, harmonious thing that I want, I think what happens is is it just reminds us of our need for him. And so God has always wanted to remind us of a few things. And I think we see it in the Old Testament and we see it all the way through the New Testament. The first one is to just understand our own sinfulness. To realize that we may not sin the way that Eli did. Or we may not sin the way Hophni or Phinehas did. But we have our own, right? And so we have to look inward and go, look, I got my own issues. 
I got my own insecurities. I got my own things that God is working on me. And so at first I recognized that. So I may not do the same thing they did, but the root that was in them is the root that's in me. That's first. Secondly, he wants us to know that we're powerless to save ourselves. We can't do anything about it. As much as you try, as much good effort as you try, as, as, as holy as you try to be, you're not going to be able to do it. The only thing that's going to do that is Christ in you. So he wants us to recognize it. He wants us to see our dependence on him, that we're powerless without him. And third, he wants us to turn to Jesus by believing and surrendering to him. Now, in the Old Testament, that obviously was turning to him. That's why they came to the tabernacle, to make peace with him. We, in our time, come and we come to Jesus and go, I can't do it. I need you. You need to take over. And then what that does is, I think, fourthly, is God wants us in response to that then to graciously love others. Because he has loved us, and it is by grace that he loves us, getting something that we don't deserve, then he wants us to turn and he wants us to be able to do that with others. To be able to love others who think differently than we do, who may do something differently than we do, and to be able to love them. And I think this pushes us to understand our need for him. This is why Augustine, I love this Augustine quote, it says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their hope in you. Ultimately, that's what he's pushing us toward. So even in the midst of this darkness that's going on with Eli and his sons and everything that's happening, there's kind of this back and forth. If you, if you read through the passage, you'll see there's hope and then there's darkness. There's hope and then there's darkness. There's hope in the, in the midst of darkness. Notice, I'll just take you through real quick. Verse 11, Samuel is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. There's the hope. Verse 12, it's dark. Eli's sons are worthless. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Again, he says, that's hope. Verse 22, the tabernacle is turned into a brothel. That's dark. Verse 26, Samuel grew in stature and favor, as opposed to Hophni and Phinehas. That's hope. Verse 27, Eli is culpable of his son's actions, and the priesthood got stripped from him. That's the darkness. Chapter 3, verse 1, here's the hope again. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. I about you, but when I look at where we are as a culture, it is getting pretty dark. We are living in a time when people, when we are a lot like the judges and a lot like this time, that people are just doing what is right in their own eyes. And every Friday, I pray to spend extended time. Each day, I'll spend extended time on, on a certain aspect that the Lord leads me to pray over. But Fridays is usually my day to just really kind of center in on our country, where we are, praying over the different branches of government, from the executive to the judicial to the legislative, and just kind of praying through people that I know, our representatives, just praying through those different areas. And I find myself just praying, God, forgive us. We are just running from you. We are calling right wrong. We're calling wrong right. We're trying to redefine things that you have established. And it just seems like it's just going south. And we're so self-sufficient. And, you know, I think of Psalm 11.3 that says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I'm like, I don't, know what, I don't know what to do. But yet in the midst of it, what's the hope is I see lives changing. I see people, with, I see glimmers of hope of God changing lives and him answering prayer. And it isn't the hope, it isn't in a flawed person. 
God has always said, don't put your hope in a man because they're flawed. The scripture shows you even the best of them were flawed. All of them were put in place to point toward who? To him. Even David, who had a whole heart and was a man after God's own heart, you see the shrapnel from his own decisions. So, and it's just saying, look, here's a man who will point you to me, but the whole point is, is he points to me, not for you to think he's going to be the Savior, because he's not. He's flawed. And you need to be looking ultimately at me. And so we, we've talked often that we want to be a gospel-centered, cross-centered church where the, where the cross is central to all of Scripture. And so all of the Old Testament, it looks forward to the cross. The New Testament, it looks back to the cross. And because we're way over here, we're looking back at the cross too. And so we always say, live a cross-centered life, a gospel-centered life. Preach the gospel to yourself and listen to yourself less. You know, when your emotions are raging all over the place, just remind yourself of the gospel. Remind you of who you are in him. Now, I learned in college, and I remember just looking at all these things, of the numerous prophetic passages in the Old Testament that spoke about Christ and the fact that he would die and he would raise again. And I remember just going, wow, there's so many of them. That's great. But it wasn't until probably 10 years later, earlier in my ministry, when a guy named Tim Keller really made it aware to me that when you look in the Old Testament, there are thousands of ways in which it is pointing to Christ, not just the prophetic passages. And when you look for those, the Old Testament comes alive. Because you're like, whoa, look what it's pointing to. Now, in this passage today, we, you might have just gone right by it. But let me show you a few of them who are in the passage today. The first is this, and it's kind of not so much explicit, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of inferred around it. Samuel was born at a time when it was incredibly dark and there was corruption in the priesthood in the tabernacle. Jesus was born in a very dark time when there was a lot of corruption going on in the government and also in the priesthood. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had a legalistic stranglehold on the people of God. And Jesus is born into that. Notice in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. When I read that, I thought, what does that remind me of? Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So what is this telling us? When you read about Samuel, Samuel really ultimately is pointing to the one who would come. Samuel was raised up by God, but don't put your trust in Samuel because he's flawed. Put your trust in the ultimate one that he points to, and that is to Christ. He's the one that it's pointing to. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a secure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now ask yourself, who's going to be a priest forever? Well, it might have been a reference to the fact that Zadok, who was going to come along and with, Adam, with uh, both David and Solomon, but ultimately, the priest forever is Jesus, right? 
When you ask a question in church, just say Jesus, and you got about a 90% chance you're going to get it right. Okay, so who is it? There you go. Way to go. And so when you look at this, if you've ever read, you know, even in the New Testament, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, this is what the book of Hebrews is trying to get across, that Jesus Christ is the priest. He's better than all the other priests that have come before him. He is the greatest. He's the perfect. He's the forever high priest who will always make intercession and will always make you come before God. That's the whole point of Hebrews is to point you upward. Listen to this out of Hebrews 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So here we are, way back in 1 Samuel, in B.C., and it is pointing to the ultimate one who can save us. Unlike Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests who were taking advantage of the people, Jesus would be a priest who would give to the people, ultimately giving himself. Interesting, in verse 25, Eli asks a question. Here's one more. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who's going to intercede for him? Jesus, who says that he intercedes for us. So if you have a secret sin and you don't want to tell anyone about it, and maybe it causes distance between you and the Lord, who's the only one that's going to bring that together? Jesus, the one who bridged the gap between God and man and said, now Jesus in Latin is pontifex, which means bridge builder. He bridged the gulf between the two of us. It's Jesus. So when you begin to look at the Old Testament and you see what it points to, it ultimately points us to the ultimate one who would come. And all of these are types. David was a type. He's flawed, but look what he's pointing to. Samuel's flawed, but look what he's pointing to. All of it is pointing to the one that we point back to and go, thank you for what you've done. It is in Jesus and it is in Jesus alone. Let's take it home. Worship team, come on up. You know, when Hannah gave Samuel to the Lord, and she said, I'll give him to you. As a first child, I'll give him to you. The way that you gave someone to the Lord is you would give them to the priesthood. So he became a, he became a first just kind of coming under the priest and just kind of learning about the ways of doing it. No way in her mind do I think that she ever thought that she was sending him into a very corrupt place. And fortunately... He followed the ways of the Lord and didn't necessarily go with the ways of darkness that was happening there. You tie that in with 1 John 2, 1, that eventually says, if anyone does sin, which you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one we're looking for. He's the one that can truly, ultimately, you fall deeper in love with him and the peace that you're looking for will flood your soul. And it won't depend upon circumstances and it won't depend upon our person. And when you see different things happen in churches and different places, you know, you're like, yeah, that's going on, but Jesus is still on the throne. And he's the one I'm ultimately putting my trust in.
And as long as he's secure, I'm secure. And as long as I find my identity in him, I'm good. But if I ever walk away from that, and I start to feel like I'm doing my own thing, and I'm trying to prove my own way, and I'm trying to be this moral person, you know, apart from him, it's never going to work. And we'll get frustrated. Because ultimately it points to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a holy God, you are a patient God, you are a gracious Father. Thank you that we can even go back into the Old Testament to days long ago. And we can look at that and instead of standing on judgment, even against Hophni and Phinehas, we can look at that and go, you know what, Lord, it just reminds me of my need for you. How easy it is for me to come to you and and just manipulate. How easy it is for me to rob you of my time or my treasure or my talent. All because I want to do my own thing. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. May we be a people who live a cross-centered life. Totally dependent on you moment by moment. The only reason that we can even sit here this morning is because you have given us the breath of life and you've given us the ability to be here. And for that, we do not want to take it for granted. And we say, thank you, Lord Jesus. May you reign and rule in our life today. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You know, ultimately we know what all the passages in the scriptures are pointing us to. And this morning, if you don't know him, if you're, under, if, if you're just there and you go, I don't really know if I know him personally, and I would like to, man, we would love to talk with you and, and begin on that journey with you. If there's a way that we can pray for you, we would love to do that as well. We have the Lord's table up here. We invite you to come and be able to partake and do so in a solemn and, and reflective way. And you know what to do from there? Go up first. We love because he first loved us. Thanks for coming.